Hello, this is Mark Watney, astronaut. I'm entering this log for the record, uh, in case I don't make it. I'm alive, obviously, but I'm guessing that's gonna come as a surprise to my crewmates and to NASA. I have no way to contact NASA, and even if I could, it's gonna be four years until a manned mission can reach me. Welcome to Now Playing Podcast's bonus review of The Martian. I'm the first person to be alone on an entire planet. A review chosen by Justin Ramsey. And luckily I have the the greatest minds on planet Earth. Hosted by Justin. The whole world is rooting for you. Jacob. I know I like my code name to be Glorfindel. And Stuart. All right, team. Let's make NASA proud today. This podcast will be spoiler-filled and may contain harsh language. Listener discretion is advised. Please watch your language. Everything you type is being broadcast live all over the world. We hope you enjoy the show. In the face of overwhelming odds, I'm left with only one option. I'm going to have to science the shit out of this. Today, we are discussing The Martian, starring Matt Damon, Jessica Chastain, Jeff Daniels, Sean Bean, Michael Pena, Kristen Wiig, and many, many more. Directed by Ridley Scott. This is the now playing co-host that is going to dip this potato and crush Vicodin and nobody can stop me, Justin. (laughs) And Stuart. And this is the co-host who refuses to turn the beat around, Jacob. (laughs) Welcome back, listeners, to space. We kicked off last week looking at the origins of how NASA, warts and all, kind of fumbled their way into putting a man into orbit. Uh, We've now kind of jumped, I don't know how far into the future. Yeah, according to the wiki, it's 2035, but according to interviews I watched with the author, it could be as much as 100 years into the future. Well, it's not 100 years into the future. It looks pretty close to the here and now. But, you know, Obama did say by 2030, we're putting somebody on the surface of Mars. So this is very near future science fiction, I think, that we're here to explore. What could be in a movie that's probably more science than fiction? Well, wherever it's set, it's in a world pre or without a President Trump, because there's a scene in this movie where the president is offended by some language, and obviously (laughs) that didn't happen in this future. (laughs) Yeah, I would have loved to see the tweet storm between him and Matt Damon. (laughs) I know we at least went into the orbit last week because of Clark, one of our donors, and this one we're doing because of another donor. Yeah, it's not the same guy that wanted us to cover right stuff. It's Justin Ramsey, who has donated for a couple shows, some that we haven't actually put out yet, but is a patron who, yeah, I I was curious. Why pick The Martian? Of all the movies you could pick for us to review, why did you pick this one? And it was real simple. He loved the book. And he was a Ridley Scott fan. He thinks that this is his second best Ridley Scott movie after Alien. 
He was excited to see what we thought of a modern sci-fi classic, is what he called it. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about the direction, but this almost feels like it's more Tony Scott, and I know he had passed by this time, than Ridley Scott. There's a levity to this one, and I'm guessing that's because of the source material, a book that I really enjoy as well. I read this before the movie had come out. Yeah, me too. But I didn't get a chance to return to it. I believe, Jacob, you did get to pick it up again. Yeah, I reread it for this viewing just so it was fresh in my mind. And yeah, this is science fiction, but heavy emphasis on the science. Andy Weir, the author of the book, is a computer programmer. His father is a a particle physicist. His mother is an electrical engineer. And it was interesting. Like I watched an interview with him by Adam Savage from Mythbusters, and he was writing this. I guess he had a website and he'd post short stories that he would write and he started just doing this one serial like just a chapter at a time and he's like guys I, I might go back and fix things in previous chapters and but yeah he reminds me a lot of Tom Clancy but instead of the military just science like he really does his research and, and gets in real deep like you want to read about mathematical equations read the Martian the book like he, he gets that deep into it yeah that's my memory was that I struggled a little because I'm not a science guy. I, I like story. And this was the first novel that Andy Weir ever wrote. So he's probably more comfortable writing instruction manuals for yes. Mars rovers <laughs> than he was like crafting a story. But it was a very entertaining read. I do remember it was pretty fleet. My memory was, and correct me if I'm wrong, the thing that this movie changed is more or less the same, but this movie added all of the other characters like i feel like in the book in my memory it was all mark watney and we didn't cut away to anybody else no that see that's how like the first four or five chapters are they really do change the structure of this film but all the characters we're going to discuss are in that book but for the Mm. first beginning it's just mark watney doing these video logs and then all of a sudden it it is a big shock like you just jump to nasa all of a sudden where they've received some satellite images i'm like oh there's other characters in here and it kind of expands from there but yeah your impression is all the stuff with the potatoes and, and and all the emergency stuff like when he first realizes he's stuck on Mars is just Mark your protagonist so yeah that I could see why you'd have that impression that it's just him in the book mm, yeah it was certainly the focus yes my sense memories of it is if you really wanted to understand what it would be like for anyone to go and try and live on Mars for any length of time this was sort of the vacation guide the manual yeah, it, you, you can't just use your crap to fertilize the soil. It gets freeze-dried in that hab. We'll talk about it, but, like, you got to have live bacteria in your crap. Like, he gets literally into the shit in that book. <laughs> I love that he would spend time. I'm ready to just accept that my shit is magical and can grow potatoes. <laughs> I really don't remember, but, but it feels so right that that book would focus on how do we get the bacteria to live in my poop. I mean, yeah, it sounds like, like you guys said, he's really into some of the realism behind the science here. I'm wondering, does he cover travel time in the book more than they do here? I mean, the movie, they mention it, and it's part of the plot and everything, but it sounds like something that he'd really dig his teeth into, because a lot of people I don't think would think going to Mars is going to take maybe a year and a half just to get there. We know potatoes are going to be a big deal in this story, and the way they get introduced is because of Thanksgiving. So Andy Weir, the author, he actually wrote like a simulation program because he's like, okay, there's certain windows when we could do these trips, and so when would they have to leave? So they'd be there on Thanksgiving, so they'd have, like, he wanted it super real. So like, yeah, he created programs to calculate times in all of this. You don't get that so much in the book, but it was interesting reading some of the behind-the-scenes stuff where you really saw how scientific he 
got going into this narrative. Yeah, I want to stress that that guy did have an editor because I do believe if left unattended to, he probably would have written a 900 page, <laughs> you know, technical manual. And it's not that it's a it's a fun read. It was a bestseller. I can see very much why Fox would sweep in there and buy the rights and say, let's make a movie out of this. But I can also see why they might go, do we really want to spend the money it takes given the long, bad history of movies that went to Mars? If you remember, 10 years before this book came out, probably the inspiration for writing a book on what Mars is really like is all those bad Hollywood movies where like Red Planet, it was Val Kilmer and Carrie Ann Moss and a robot dog going there in 2000. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah. The only recent one I remember going to Mars with was John Carter, that Disney flop, and that wasn't supposed to be accurate. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, exactly. That one at least can say we were trying to be fun and fantastical. But yeah, Red Planet cost $80 million and made seventeen. Mission to Mars, Gary Sinise, Tim Robbins. Yeah, these are all movies I stayed away from. <laughs> they get there and there's a bunch of elephants. I kid you not. Like Elephants? <laughs> that sounds like a John Carter sequel. Yeah, I don't know why Brian De Palma thinks there's elephants on Mars. There's not. I feel very confident about that. They did slightly better. They spent $100 million and made 60 so they only lost $40 million instead of $66 million. <laughs> But you get my point. Hollywood's very gun-shy about keep making movies that aren't successful. And I think part of that reflects the fact that while American audiences and international audiences love movies about space travel, the practical nuts and bolts real stories, like our own space program, is kind of sad. Particularly at this point, NASA has had more struggles. We had Mir and we had Hubble, which, you know, we put the lens on backwards. We've had a few victories. We got some probes to Mars, but this movie will make clear we got other ones. They're broken. I do think that there's not a lot of reason right now, and I don't know a whole lot of people that are optimistic uh, that in our lifetime, we're going to get off this planet. Yeah, you, you, you talk about bad things happening in space. I, I did just recently hear a story, like the toilets are broken on the International Space Station. They're wearing diapers right now. But <laughs> when, when it comes to Mars, last year... 2020, when we're all stuck indoors, I remember watching the landing of the Perseverance, or or at least you get to see the control room, and then you got to see some images for the latest rover sent to Mars, and that was super exciting, and maybe because, like Andy Weir, the author of this novel, I'm kind of a science nerd, and so to me, it was just amazing, like, we're going to shoot something at a planet, and it's going to, like, have to fly for five months, and maybe it'll work when it lands, we don't know, like, I don't know, I really got caught up in that excitement, like, while they're waiting for the thing to start up and, and see if this, you know, years of building this and shooting it off into space actually was a success. And see, I only find out about space when William Shatner goes. Yeah, see, I'm cynical. Like, forget these billionaires in space. Give me the real thing. The PR is kind of what captures the popular imagination. We ignore that we had. I feel like my generation, we took for granted that we got to the moon. I was born after that. So it was kind of like, yeah, big whoop. We know, we can do this. Of course, there's Star Wars. Why would I be impressed with you, like, spinning around the Earth a couple times? Like, And then, of course, yeah, all of the Challenger and, and other disasters they've had, there's there's just not a lot of inspiration there for anyone that's outside of, I think, your wheelhouse, Jacob. If you're a science nerd and you do love this stuff, I'm sure it's very exciting to see all the innovations that have happened. But to my mind, it's been more failure than success. So telling a story about us trying to really get there as we have the capabilities now sounds kind of depressing. Yeah, and th- this is another story about failure, which was inspired by Apollo 13. The author's just like, hey, what if we did that in a more extreme situation? Like, not 
just up in space by the moon, but like, what if you're stuck on Mars and nothing worked and you, you're abandoned? Like, how would you live through that? So, yeah, it is kind of about things not going right when we go to space. And I do think there was one other space failure, though fictional, that made this movie be put on the fast track. Sandra Bullock went up there and won some Oscars. Gravity won seven Academy Awards in 2013 and made a whole bunch of money as well, nearly $300 million. Part of that was that they used 3D technology and it was just really transportive. I would have gone anywhere with all that stuff flying at me. But it really, I think, kickstarted the genre and, and made this property feel like something that Fox could invest $100 million in. And, you know, Ridley Scott doesn't come cheap. When he signed on, everyone was happy and everyone knew, wow, this is going to be potentially a big expensive bomb. A lot of Ridley Scott movies around this time were not financially successful. Yeah, are they ever? They're, it seems like more times than not, they're not successful. Yeah, I, I agree. I'm glad that I don't, I'm not one of his funders. As much as I enjoy his visions always, artistically, they don't always succeed. And many times, I mean, again, all the bazillions they spend on the Christopher Columbus movie or just prior to this movie. Uh, the last duel that just came out, like that's a huge bomb. Yeah, exactly. He had just made a Moses movie with Exodus just the previous year prior to this. What? He did a Moses, like the actual Moses? I swear to God, yes, it's called Exodus. You can, God's in something or rather. Okay, that is ringing a bell. But Ridley Scott comes with a double-edged sword. On one hand, you can't wait to see the films. On the other hand, you know nobody else is going to. Probably it's <laughs> going to be a big, expensive bomb. But this movie was not. First of all, he brought it in kind of cheap for Ridley Scott. It was $100 million. Not so bad, considering these things can spiral to double or triple that. And this was a big hit. Artistically, commercially, did you guys see it when it came out in 2015? I didn't see it on the big screen. I, I did see it as soon as it hit home video. It was one of those that kind of snuck past me in the theaters. But by the time it was ready to hit home screens, I was well aware and I, I wanted to check it out. Yeah, I was super excited for it because I had read the book and I knew there was a movie coming. And then I, I looked at the, like when it came out, I'm like, usually if I don't see something in theaters that I wanted to, it's because I stuck doing stuff for now playing. But that wasn't the case. So life must have happened. But I did see it as soon as it was available to watch at home. Mm. Yeah, I saw it again. Fox movie. I can go see it for free on the lot at this time. I was still working there. And yeah, I remember being impressed. And I think this was one of those that they pushed in 3D format. They did have some 3D cameras and they tried to kind of do the gravity thing. Not all showings were in that. But part of probably why it took in so much money was that it was an extra cost to see that 3D ticket. But I remember having very positive memories of this. And even though it wasn't so long ago, enough time had passed that I had kind of forgotten the nuts and bolts of what happened. I remember a lot of potatoes. I remember it was a lot of Matt Damon talking to himself, but I couldn't have told you what the plot was. And I was curious to go back and see how it did compare with some of those other movies like Gravity. Yeah, same here. Like I, after having seen this, you know, four or five years ago, I could have told you Matt Damon's in it, but I, I forgot about the majority of supporting cast here. And the rest of the story. And I remembered most of it. Uh, most of all, though, I'm like, where'd the science go? Like, they took the science. They didn't cast anyone to be the science in that movie. Like, that was my big takeaway. It's a, it's a different film if you've read that book. I mean, of course, you can't just, like, recite math equations. But that was something special about that book. We want more bacteria in the poop. Yes. You barely get any poop stuff in this film. <laughs> One shot of poop. What is that about? Well, <laughs> even in the extended version, did you guys see, I, you saw it in home format. There is a 3D version you can watch, the theatrical version you can watch, or a version that's about 10 minutes longer they call the extended cut. Yeah, this time around I watched the extended cut. Yeah. 
I saw both just to try to cover my bases. I knew I wasn't going to have time for the book. So I wanted to see if there was anything that majorly got left out. And I would say in general, maybe a few moments linger a little bit longer with either cut is pretty much the same movie, I would argue. I would say there at one point, Matt Damon types a very naughty word. And if you want to know what that word is, watch the extended cut. There's a bunch of jokes about it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I, mu- I must have seen the regular cut then because I'm, I'm still in the dark as to what that magic word was. Felcher. Don't Google it. Yeah, don't Google it. That's one of the jokes. And if it's on DVD, maybe you also saw that they added pre-mission videos. There's sort of extras on there. But if you wanted to see what it was like to launch, because, of course, once we get started in this movie, they're already there and leaving. But uh, they do have more of Matt Damon cutting it up, being a smart aleck. A shrink is trying to diagnose if he's psychologically ready to go. And he's so, like... You know, in the throes of depression because he just can't figure out why Aquaman can control whales <laughs> since whales are mammals and not fish. Yeah, that is in the book. There's a joke about that. Yeah. I figured there were jokes left out from the book. I, yeah. Yeah. The Council of Elrond thing, which is funny because Sean Bean's in the scene. Like, that's all in the book. Weir did write a short story prequel. It's like three journal entries. I would say not necessary. I didn't learn a whole lot more about Mark Watney, except to confirm that he is single, like he didn't have a family, which was a big bonus to NASA when they found that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, apparently there's an Oculus Rift virtual reality experience they put out uh, to promote the movie as well, which I, I've only used that system once or twice. I imagine it's probably pretty cool if you can get a hold of it, but I couldn't. But maybe this movie will be a, a simulation of Mars enough for all of us. I guess uh, let's let's get to Mars. Get our ass to Mars. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stuart, take us there. Give us a plot. All right. Well, Matt Damon stars as Mark Watney, a botanist who was only supposed to be on the surface of Mars for a month. But a freak storm caused Melissa Lewis, his commander played by Jessica Chastain, to scrub the mission, and everyone flies home 12 days earlier. Watney gets hit by debris during the evacuation, and he's left behind when it seems impossible to the crew that any man could have survived such a dramatic injury. But Watney has a bad habit of finding ways to beat the odds, and he wakes up injured, alone, and incredibly determined to live until the next space mission arrives four years hence. Using a combination of science smarts and sarcastic humor, the botanist devises ingenious ways to grow a renewable food supply of potatoes and power his space rover so that he can drive to the 1997 crash site of the failed Mars probe. Using that old equipment, the Martian devises a means to communicate his situation back to the scientist on Earth, and they collaborate on thinking up the best way to get Mark home alive. Numerous things go wrong as time passes in units called souls, which are basically Earth days extended by 39 minutes. And Mark temporarily blows his habitat up and kills his garden. The rocket designed to bring him new supplies also explodes in the rush to get it launched. And maybe worst of all, Mark only has disco to listen to. But with each setback, there is a new opportunity to collaborate, and NASA is able to establish a partnership with China's space program, which is ready with a new rocket. And an egghead played by Donald Glover figures out a way to dramatically cut down on the rescue time by putting his colleagues' return flight in a slingshot maneuver that sends them hurling back to Mars. And after a series of logistical nightmares, Commander Lewis and the other four astronauts grab the botanist as he blasts off the surface in a rocket with no roof, and they return safely to Earth. There, Mark begins a new career path, teaching future generations about space survival and musing on what it takes to colonize Mars as credits roll. Over I Will Survive, which would have been 
you know, a better song to have on one of those playlists while he was stuck up there. Yeah. I, they, they expertly use all of the disco music to comment on the situation. He may not like it, but I think audiences will appreciate the care that goes into each selection of the song. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He in that book, he goes through everyone's digital media that they're allowed to bring. Like, you want to know his thoughts on Three's Company, like Dukes of Hazard. It's all there. And Fonz makes it into this one. But, yes. Uh, happy. There's a little bit of happy days, but you got to reduce when you're adapting to the screen. I imagine the book starts with Mark already stranded and thinking about what happened to him. Here we get a little more setup. Yeah, all this stuff we'll see here. They go with a much more straightforward narrative in this film. Yeah, in the book, it starts off when he's doing that first video log and you learn about what happened as he's, you know, just doing these updates and he's talking to you for, again, like the first four or five chapters before you find out that anyone else is going to enter this story. But here, yeah, you get right into it. Like, you get a little scene, you see everyone, like, doing their little jobs on Mars and then very quickly, like, maybe five minutes in, like, we got a sandstorm and and we're off and rolling with this film. Like, we're not going to do 30 minutes of, like, developing each of these astronauts as a character. Mars looks beautiful, but I got to say, it also looks like Arizona, right? Like it does feel (laughs) almost like Earth. It's Sedona Mars. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like it's kind of a very Earth-like, and maybe that's the point, is maybe we can turn this thing into Earth Part 2. Does it feel like Budapest, Hungary? That's where most of this was filmed. No, Well, the exteriors were filmed in the Middle East, in Jordan. I don't think this looks like Budapest at all, but the interiors, apparently they have big cavernous sets that you can build spaceships and, and do all the wire work they need to. So, yes, all of this movie was shot in Europe. Well, right away, this movie starts making my science fiction-y radar go off. Like, does Mars have an atmosphere enough to have clouds and moisture that would create windstorms and stuff like that? Absolutely. It's like, okay, yeah, great. I'm learning now. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Yeah, I think you can trust this movie. The BS meter did not go off for me as a non-scientist. Yeah, when I was watching that interview with Weir and Adam Savage, like Adam Savage called out the one thing that's BS in the book and in this movie. And it's not what you would think. It's the space suits. They're like, no, you're those are much more mobile than they actually are in real life. Like that that is the biggest stretch of the imagination is yeah, these Iron Man like spacesuits that they're able to wear. Oh yeah, man, when I see these suits, I mean again, and knowing that Ridley Scott is at the helm of this, I'm like, are they on Mars or LV426? <laughs> Particularly when the storm starts and we see the guy blow away and all of that and like Matt Damon has to come back inside and like staple up his injury and all of that. I'm like, these feel like scenes from Prometheus. I remember that dragon tattoo chick having to pull an alien out of her stomach (laughs) with a machine very similar. That's right. Yeah. I feel like Ridley Scott has pulled a lot from movies he had recently made to maybe do this on the cheap. Again, 100 million. This movie looks better than that. That's a pretty mid-sized budget movie these days, but this movie is, is beautiful looking because Ridley Scott knows how to stretch a dollar. Yeah, and you talk about scenes like where he's stapling himself up and pulling the antenna out. That feels very Ridley Scott. I would say most of this film, and maybe because it's Damon and because of the Mark Watney character, he's kind of, I'd call him a science bro. Like, he's really uh-huh. into science, but he's always like, F yeah. Yeah. And so, like, I feel like there are scenes, like, during that self-surgery and, like, the score is real ominous that I'm like, oh, this feels like Ridley Scott. And then other times, it feels like Tony Scott. I'm like, oh, this feels very commercial. This doesn't feel, like, as dark and weighty as I you would usually expect a Ridley Scott film to feel. I hear what you're saying, but I'm actually going to say one of the interesting things, one of the really interesting things I find about this movie is, although it is filled with supposed comedy, it's filmed in such a way that I, I don't think that it's made to make me laugh so much 
much as make me aware of how much comedy can be a survival technique. Like part of the reason that Mark is able to stay alive is because he is this jokester and can keep his mood up. Like it becomes a part of his skill that he's able to say, I'm going to, you know, science the shit out of this. When, my God, if you wake up and realize everyone has left you, no mission is coming for four years. 95% of the people would probably just give up and die that day. Well, and one of the things you don't really get in the book, I would say the the book and even in this film, you don't get a lot of character. Like you you get who Mark is, but you're not going to get a lot of background or a full arc. But one of the things Weir was saying was he's talked to astronauts now that he's written this book and he's like, they will just solve a problem. Like they're very much like the astronauts in this film. Like, yes, us normal people, we'd freak out and just lay there and die. Not an astronaut. They're just built differently. And did I hear you correctly we're the author didn't have access to astronauts while he was writing it no he he didn't meet any astronauts till after he wrote it oh wow super impressed this has all the credibility of authenticity i mean he did a ton of research though yeah i agree It, it feels very researched I think a little bit of the appeal here, too, to modern audiences is shows like The Office and Parks and Rec and stuff like that had already become very popular. And the way that we interact with Mark here is very much in the tone of those shows where he's basically talking to nobody but a camera. And that's how we're getting to know him. He's not having conversations with people. He's talking to himself through a camera to us. That's a trope that TV watchers of modern day came to find funny and intriguing so i think this is the first time i'm seeing something like this on the big screen but it still feels like a movie yeah you know they every desert island movie needs a wilson right you need that volleyball and a stick something that the character if they're all alone they they still got to interact and so yes i do think that the choice that's made is that mark gets to interact with us he breaks the fourth wall and again we're watching him many times trying to save his own mood by making us laugh imagining what us the audience might think of how he's behaving as he deals with problem after problem yes very much so i mean without the cutbacks to what's going back on on earth which you know we start to get pretty soon after the the main accident happens here but yeah, a good chunk of this movie is just Matt Damon talking into a camera. Mm-hmm. That was my memory of the entire movie. Again, I always marginalize, and let's face it, they're just not interesting characters. They are important, and I do think that it's very important that we have so many characters. I think it's the theme of this movie, frankly, that space travel is all about many people working together and not one man alone. They didn't want that to be the message of this movie. This is about teamwork. And that's strange because in my mind, this is a movie about a man against the elements, you know, like this is Castaway part two. Yeah. I mean, they're going to set up pretty early on that it can't just be a man alone. Like, yes, there, there are constantly, not constantly, but every few years, you know, there's a new Mars mission. And so can he last four years? And he's got to do the calculations. Can I make enough potatoes? And again, in the book, it's going to go way into detail. He has vitamins. He doesn't need to worry about that. He has protein bars. He doesn't need to worry about protein. He needs potatoes just for the calories. Like that, that is all he needs food for but i gotta ask you justin because you hadn't read the book so your expectations are probably a, a bit different the way you're seeing this like i feel like that book for every problem like he goes seven layers deep like i need to make potatoes okay i need dirt for, to have dirt i need oxygen like then i need bacteria which means poo. like it just keeps going down he's got to solve seven layers of problems here i feel like it gets a lot of lip service but i, I don't know if it has the same impact you know having seen this before 
I think first time through, that was way more intriguing and kept me glued to my seat, you know, wanting to figure out, oh, this is clever how he's figuring out this problem. But on a second viewing, even all these years later, I think it's good to keep it kind of surface level. You got to keep this moving and stuff like that, I think, is much better on the written page. And I'm going to say that even though, Jacob, I think particularly because the book is fresh in your mind, even though that might be the stuff that really excites the science nerds, there's plenty of that here. And I think that the average moviegoer is going to be really surprised at the level of detail that they do go into about survival. And I actually was able to appreciate that a lot more this time. The, the first time I was like, so mad, like, where'd all the science go? This time I'm like, oh no, they, they are referencing things. It is there. Yes. It's there. I agree. It, for sure it's there. They have not dumbed this movie down, but they probably streamlined it. Yeah, so I guess to directly answer your question, I think they do a very good job of walking that line of keeping it just enough to keep it interesting and not having me nod off because it's starting to become mumbo-jumbo. Yeah, question. I couldn't catch it in either viewing. It goes by so fast. I do feel like the movie, you know, it, it kind of like... It's not a fast movie. It's, you know, almost two and a half hours long, but I do feel like they try to use editing to keep the pace going, even though it's basically a guy sitting in a tent waiting <laughs> for rescue a lot of the time. He ends up, one of the first problems he's solving is I got to grow potatoes. And I love the fact that, like, he's got the calculations for recipe for water and all of this. What was the crucifix? At one point, very quickly, we see him like turn to a cross, and I think it was Martinez, and whittle it down. Yeah, he needed something to start the fire with because NASA doesn't want fires in the house. Ah. And so everything's fireproof. And, and I did take that as a little dig, like, yes, science is going to solve our problems, not God. Like, we're going to whittle this cross down. Oh, that's not a little dig. That is a major message of, like, this is not going to be a movie. And that's just kind of a surprise, because many of these kind of movies, Castaway is a movie about a man talking to God, and God telling him, you need to change your life and slow down and appreciate time and not let things pass by you. And this movie is very much like, nope, <laughs> we will just, like, use crucifixes as part of our tools for growing potatoes. This is utilitarian. Everything has a function, and that is the scientific mindset, and I love it. Yeah, I'm with you there too, Stuart. Like, this movie could have taken a completely different turn if it did start getting into, you know, the spirit of man and our relationship with the creator while you're stranded on the fourth planet from the sun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even in movies where it's not about coming face to face with God. Again, I brought it up last week. I'm going to bring it up again. Armageddon. Like, where's the scene when the world comes together and people are praying for the astronaut's safety? Like, that stuff is not here. We'll see people watching this on the news. But yeah, there, there's no praying, bring them home. God, like it is so science based. To put a fine point on it, this is a movie that says if you want to survive, you've got to do it. It's not about giving it up. It's not like Jesus take the wheel. This is like you take that wheel and turn it into something that you can ride on and like maybe eat. I don't know. But again, like that is the perspective here. And again, very rare. I think it would be very easy. When I think about a lot of space movies, including 2001, movies I love, it usually does get contemplative about where we come from and our existence. And this movie says, nope, uh-uh, not what we're here to do. Jesus, take the wheel of this Mars rover. <laughs> and yes, we do get a lot at this point. After we've established Damon as a very capable, self-sustaining person, we do start to be introduced to a very large cast of characters 
who are all more or less good. Like this, what's another unique take on this movie is there's no villains per se. If if there, we get a villain in this, probably the closest one is Jeff Daniels, Teddy Sanders, the head of the NASA program. He's the one that prematurely calls Mark dead in the press conference. He'll make some choices later that, you know, don't tell the other scientists what happened and I don't approve of them going back. You always got to fight some bureaucracy, but I feel like this movie is pretty light on villainy and very heavy on teamwork and collaboration. And I'll say that probably comes from the novel, which is very secular humanist. Like, the end of that novel is Mark Watney going, isn't it great what humans can do when they come together? Like, we, we can do anything. Like, China, good guys in this film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you would definitely be... I mean, it's probably a move they would make in Armageddon. Maybe they did. I didn't see that movie. But I definitely feel like... Part of problem solving, what I love about this movie, is a PR problem. Like, we're going to have Kristen Wiig in here as the person that worries about how these messages get translated in the media. And we're, they're always having to go confront hard-to-answer questions from reporters and rooms and all. Like, I love the wide-ranging net they throw around how we can bring a man home from Mars. There's so many problems packed into that. And working for a government bureaucracy myself, like, this feels so authentic, like, where people are, there's a man we got to get off of Mars or he's going to die. And, well, can we get the overtime approved to do this, though? Like, that is a very real thing. (laughs) Yeah, they talk about money occasionally. And and again, I, I think you have to. I mean, as much as we might like to think in extreme circumstances at any cost, that's never true. Truly, in reality, there's always cost and and pros and cons. And you will see all the bean counters weighing all the ways that they can achieve the aims. They're all working towards the same goal, but how they go about it and how they solve all the problems along the way is mostly the act too. Like, again, this is very rare that I think of a movie about a guy alone being about really 300 people. Part of it, I guess he's pretty alone until he figures out how to communicate with them. It really takes the next leg of the movie for NASA to figure out how Mark is going to talk to them. Yeah, because first they just, finally they get some satellite time. Like That is so crazy to think like, oh yeah, we got a guy on Mars. Well, we don't want to look at the satellites because there might be a body and that's going to end up on the news. And like, we got to fight over satellite time. But when they finally get that, they realize like the solar panels have been cleaned off. They see that rover moving from time to time. So they know something's going on. They believe he's alive. It isn't even really a joyous moment for them. They're like, oh, because he's still dead. Like, we won't be able to get to him in time. How awful that we're just going to watch. We're going to have to televise his death. Like, it would just be easier if it had been instantaneous, as the crew had suspected. How awful to watch and witness his slow motion passing away. Right. It, It raises the question, you know, that you've kind of already raised, Stuart, which is, which would you rather be? Stranded on a desert island where nobody knows that you survived and are located or would you rather be stranded someplace where people know you're alive and just can't get to you Mm -hmm. you know so it's one of those things where you know this movie does a good job of presenting things that the standard person's not going to think about you know your first thought is like well let's get another rocket up there well cost is an issue right yeah don't we just have this right (laughs) why can't you just do this but like you can't just pull this stuff again it took so much work to get this mission to mars Uh, the fastest they could hope to do is like in a couple years get a supply rocket to him yeah one of the things they talk about in the book is that 
why weigh the shuttles down with supplies when you can just shoot them, you know, a few years ahead of time and have them crash land on the planet? Like, so there are some really interesting ideas like, oh, yeah, if we are going to go to Mars or even further, like the author, Weir, like does have some good ideas. I'm sure he read them somewhere else, too. He's not the only one. Yeah, it does make a whole lot of sense not to send everything in one lump. And yeah, like if it doesn't have to be manned, yeah, go ahead and just throw it out there. And again, maybe my favorite detail of this entire movie, I know it is, in fact, is the way that they are able to extract the Mars probe. I can't emphasize how much we all laughed at NASA. Again, I think they were at their lowest at this point about like Hubble, you know, they put the lens on backwards and they couldn't like, they had this satellite that was supposed to see deep into space and they could see nothing. They couldn't see, you know, (laughs) like five feet in front of the lens and they had to go put on another one. And then, yeah, we send this very expensive Mars probe. It's going to give us all these pictures and then it just crashes and fails and we get nothing out of it. Like the, The point of this movie, the thing that is really beautiful about it is the idea that there is no mistakes, that all of those are toe holes. Because those things happened, we're able to build off of that and bring Mark home. Like the reason why he survives is because that Mars probe crashed and he can go there and start that communication. And then all, you know, it's a theme I keep coming back to is things that you just don't think about without a movie like this. <laughs> and, you know, even now that he has satellite uplink, it's only pictures. And these pictures take, I think it was 24 minutes in between communication. So he's not just having direct, you know, conversations with these people. He's got to devise a way to speak to these people in 24 minute intervals. Mm-hmm. This is the part of the book that I really wish Arnie was here to, to explain to me. Cause this is where the computer programmer comes out. Yeah. You talk about this ASCII alphabet and the system, and then they're able to like give him directions on how to like reprogram the Rover to do something like, and again, the book, it's really into the details of how like you could do this whole reprogramming. It's very technical, but I like the movie version here more. I was able to follow it a lot better. Yeah. I would just say as a non-science person, I, I'm very comfortable with what they've given me. I never feel like I really want a whole lot more. Then it just becomes like me trying to remember math. Again, I'm all for the metaphors. And again, the whole idea that he digs up that failure and now it's the thing that's keeping them alive and giving him hope and he knows they're going to be sending supplies to him. That has to do a whole lot. Just knowing that people are out there thinking about you, that they know you're alive and yeah, you can... You know, in a primitive way, you can still communicate with them. They eventually figure out how to hack his rover and he can basically email and I think eventually even talk and and, and they're able to hear it. But yeah, that's got to help the morale, which is a big component in surviving in such isolation. Though it's around this time that he finds out when he's able to type almost instantaneously back and forth, he's like, so so what does the crew on the Hermes think? Uh, We haven't told them. And that is a sinking feeling like. Oh, they, they don't even know I'm alive. And, you know, they're worried about their guilt. You, you say a bad guy. I don't know if they're he's a bureaucrat, <laughs> Jeff Daniels, in this film. Like, I, I can't get too upset at him. Like, I understand his point of view. Yeah, they, they got to get back. They can't be thinking that, oh, my God, we're leaving someone behind. We again, you would if I were on that crew. And certainly the way that it is in the theatrical cut, like they leave pretty quick after he gets hit with that. They're like, well, he couldn't have survived longer than a minute. Got to get out of here. Uh, there's a little bit more wringing of hands in the extended version. You say a little. I felt it was a lot because I didn't remember how quick the theatrical cut was. I'm like, man, they're really making a point. Hey, guys, these astronauts are not to blame for abandoning Mark Watney. They have done everything they can. Like Lewis is like poking her head out of the rear thrusters. They're taking off practically to like still 
still look out for him. I, I thought it went on a little too long, like it was trying to absolve them too much. You want to believe that these people did everything they possibly could to get him and concluded there was nothing they could do. If you were settling on a ship where t- for 10 months all you could do was reflect on the fact that you left a guy behind to die uh, because you didn't take that extra 10 seconds or whatever, like, yeah, I imagine that would, again, morale can be the real killer. Like, maybe that mission doesn't come home. So I get why Jeff Daniels tries to protect them from that guilt. But I also get why Mark Watney is irate and using, yes, in the extended cut, felching to describe. Yes, you're a bureaucratic felcher. <laughs> yeah, yeah, what, <laughs> what, what his feelings are about them not knowing. Because I guess another point of this movie is there's no news that's so bad that smart people can't handle it. Tell me the worst so that I can work on the problem. Don't shield me from things. Don't try and protect my psyche by telling me things are great when they're not. When the rocket with my supplies blows up tell me don't have me believing it's coming because then we can work on the problems at hand and they can be fixed this movie has the idea that any problem can be fixed as long as you're willing to admit what the problem is yeah and i suppose in that way i mean Stuart, you brought it up that the closest thing this movie has to a bad guy would be jeff daniel's character but but yeah i mean like you've said everything he's doing is out of being pragmatic He's not trying to be an asshole. He's not trying to do a cover-up or anything. He's just doing what he thinks is best at this point. Although they do want him fired. I love that press conference where they're like, are you going to resign? (laughs) No. (laughs) There are a lot of little, like, bureaucratic jokes in the book, and and I thought they translated pretty well. They still got him into this film, which was... Part of the fun, like one of my favorite scenes was just like a little paragraph where the U.S. Post Office put out a Mark Watney memorial stamp and then they find out he's alive and they're like, well, it's against the rules to have a stamp of someone that's alive so that they recall him. And now it's this huge collector's item. (laughs) That feels like real life. Again, the more details you can do like that, the more authentic the story becomes. And, And I really feel for Bruce, played by Benedict Wong in this film, like he's tasked with putting a capsule up into space, get it to Mars with supplies just to help. Mark last long enough because right now they're planning on him just being out there for four years until this the next Hermes comes in and more astronauts land and so hey can we get him a, a, a supply and like something that should take years to do he's given what like three months six months something and he's like I'll try my best and you get that line from Kapoor is like a man's life depends on that like oof like just that kind of pressure like it all comes out in this film like what a stressful thing this would be it's not just a swashbuckling fun adventure And yet, at the same time, what I most admire about that is the movie would say, yeah, but they're just going to find a way. Even though that these are impossible odds, they're going to find a way to do it. No, they're going to rush that thing and it'll blow up. Because they didn't take the time, they will fail. Yeah, they they go through all the math, you know. How how many times do we actually find something wrong when we do an inspection? Like, okay, we'll just avoid all that. And yeah, it blows up in orbit. And the Chinese have a chance to step in. And I do think it's a big point of Weir's who wrote the novel, this is about humanity coming together. Ultimately, humanity's good. So China, their whole thing is, yeah, we have a rocket. No one knows we have it. Like, we could not help, and no one will ever know that we didn't help. Or we can. We could go out there and risk our reputation. Or maybe improve their reputation. Again, I think (laughs) that there's a PR victory in being able to say, we'll be the guys that give you the supply rocket. And I think if this movie had been made just a couple years later they would have somehow injected the idea of private 
billionaire space rocketeering in this part. Yeah, Elon Musk would be giving them the rocket. Yeah. Yeah, that's where it obviously would come, frankly, is that we're much closer to allowing corporations to make these decisions than China. But I I think the real point is that sometimes what brings us together, again, if you think about Chernobyl being the thing that helped end the Cold War, wouldn't it be great if a disaster like Mark Guadney being stranded could actually repair relations between the U.S. and China? That this is actually, and the movie will certainly end on the idea, it's the beginning of a new collaboration. But here it's just because Bruce knows somebody. He's, he's Chinese by ancestry, even though he's American, and he can call his uncle, and that's what gets the ball rolling in any way. Speaking of things blowing up, I think maybe the mo- biggest disaster Mark has to deal with since he first got stranded is that airlock exploding. His potatoes die. The whole hab goes down for a bit. Did you guys understand why it blew up? No. No, I saw a little pinhole happen, and then it just blew. I mean, in the book, it makes it clear it was never supposed to be used that much. Like, he is bringing soil in all day and opening, you know, every time he has to bring soil in, he's got to pressurize and then bring it in. It was just overuse, and so it finally just gave way, and that, oh, talk about heartbreaking. When you see that frost rush in and just instantly kill the potatoes, my heart sinks. And for him, too. And I think this is an important moment dramatically. Like, Matt Damon, up to this point, is not going to let us feel sorry for him. Yeah, it's bad, but I'll just science it and we'll we'll just get through. And you know what? That is a defense mechanism. Like, yes, it's so great that you want to entertain us, but be vulnerable. Tell me the truth. This would be a moment that you would cry. And I do feel like I was so grateful at this moment to see that resolve crumble and him realize the magnitude of what he's facing. He does pull it together. He's not going to like dwell in there and be immobile, but we needed to see that human moment. And Damon's really good in this movie. I want to stress the fact that I'm not sure there would have been anybody else that would have been the right age and the right sort of good guy charisma to pull this part off. Yeah, again, it's all about that science bro charisma. And for better or for worse, like Damon is who I think of. Yeah. Will Hunting was that way, right? He was a math yes. genius, yep. but he was also unlucky in love, and he was human. and Yeah, working class guy, yeah. Working class, exactly. Like, they draw on that so well that, I mean, I'm sure that they offered this to Tom Cruise and Will Smith and all the people that make the most money in Hollywood, but Damon feels the most perfect for it. Yeah, and now he gets to, you know, he got to go to Mars when Affleck got to blow up an asteroid. <laughs> I'm so glad I haven't seen that movie. <laughs> We're going to get you to see it, Stuart. <laughs> I do feel like, you know, part of the actorly thing is to physically transform, but they cheat here, right? He starts off looking pretty buff. We have him, like, coming back and cutting off his under armor, and he's pretty ripped in the beginning of this movie. But that's body double stuff, I think. Once we see the rationing. Yeah, I thought it was obviously body double because you see this really emaciated male from behind and then they like cut to the front and just before he raises his head, they cut to a close-up of Matt Damon. That This was not him. But they go back in the extended cut. We do get to see another shot of him, you know, without the suit looking even worse, just covered in rashes and sores and just, yeah, very thin. Yeah, I think he probably did drop weight, but, you know, when Tom Hanks did this, they let him take a year off to film the skinny stuff. Here it's a scene. There's only so much you can uh, an actor can do in the short amount of time that this movie's going to film, and they weren't going to wait another year with this kind of investment to, to let him drop weight. So, yeah, they throw a towel over an actual skinny guy and shoot him from the back. But, again, I buy it. My point for bringing this up is not to say that the illusion crumbled, but that the fact that even though they have to do these kinds of tricks... 
for the most part, this is a very seamless, believable vision with an actor that's carrying this movie. Yeah, and I wouldn't expect him to go method here. I mean, considering the environment he's in calls for him to be in space suits most of the time. So, you know, the, for one shot to be, you know, emaciated just wouldn't be worthwhile. Christian Bale would have done it. He, he definitely would have. Yeah. <laughs> this came out the same year as The Revenant. And, you know, Leo won the Oscar. He beat Damon to the Oscar because he was actually willing to go out there and get frostbit and eat buffalo innards and, and whatever. There's there's a competition, and I think particularly male actors, to show who's willing to go to the most extremes. And I guess Leo wins. That's why he got the statue. The women have it, too. It's what beautiful actress will make herself look ugly on screen. That's how you get that Oscar. That's true. Yes, exactly. There is some respect. This was just missing a Mars bear. They just needed a bear on Mars. And... <laughs> You're right. If only it had been in Mission to Mars. I guess De Palma would have had elephants at least. He could have fought an elephant. Yeah, he would have had to like, eat a, a tusk or something. That could have been its own kind of fun. But yeah, I feel like Matt Damon is doing everything that he can and keeping this movie going. Because I do think, as interesting as these concepts are, if we didn't connect with this character, if it became all science, probably by this point, people would be checking out. Instead, we have Donald Glover coming up with Project Elron. <laughs> it's such a weird... I'm like, is that Donald Glover there? I'm like, oh my gosh, it is. I did not remember him playing Rich Purnell, this like astrophysicist genius that like doesn't sleep and is crunching all these numbers. And yeah, you, you got to do the Star Trek Four, the Voyage Home thing. You got to whiplash around the planet and, and slingshot yourself back to Mars. That's the best plan. Is that where I got that from? I'm like, I've seen this slingshot thing before. Yes! <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. that's... <laughs> Where I know I first saw it was the voyage home. Yeah, they slingshot the sun. Okay, I I feel like maybe a couple times. Yeah, yeah, they do the sun in that one, but <laughs> mm-hmm. and again, it's a funny Lord of the Rings joke in part because yeah, Sean Bean's in the room as well, like having to explain it to Kristen Wiig, who I didn't remember in this movie. I, again, you forget. Yeah, she's not doing the Kristen Wiig thing in this. <laughs> You forget all the people that are in the room. And I think, yes, if you wanted to streamline, you could cut down the number of characters, but you'd be missing the point. And the point is, it takes a village to make this happen. It's not going to be Mark Watney inventing the fuel that gets him home with no other help. Like, it will take hundreds and hundreds of people crossing boundaries and borders to do this work. That's what good work is. It's collaboration among diverse populations with people that have unique skills. And and Donald Glover's skill is what exactly? He just can do math computations? Yeah, he, he's like a astrophysicist. He knows how to calculate all those, I don't know. Again, in, in the book, it goes into how there's only certain windows where you can launch to even go to Mars because the planets, Earth and Mars, you know, they're different lengths apart depending on the time of the year. And so you got to wait for a window where they're really close. And like, he understands all this. Like, you you get it. He's sitting there plugged into a supercomputer crunching numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I get it enough as I need to. God knows I not, don't want to see his, I don't want to have to check his work. I can be <laughs> sure of that. He can't even check it. He has to have a computer do it. Yeah. I, I love the fact that this becomes like a source of controversy. Everyone wants to get this guy home, but do you want to risk the people? Like the the plan essentially is you guys that left him have to go back and spend, what, two more years in space. Like that's what a commitment. And again, you could kill everyone. Like it could be the story of one tragedy or six. I mean, this did take me back to the right stuff last week. Like the plan is we're we're just going to stick him in a capsule. You're not a pilot. You are a space monkey and you're going to write an explosion of 
up to another spaceship. Like, it is a crazy plan. Even this gets a little confusing because it's a plan that they share with the astronauts, but then back away and don't allow them to do it. Well, that's Jeff Daniels again. Well, they secretly share it with them. Yeah, Sanders, the Jeff Daniels character, he doesn't want to do this. So the Sean Bean character, he's the one, he sends them an encrypted attachment on an email, basically, and that adds the entire plan. It's supposed to be except pictures of someone's kids. And what it turns out to be is like, yeah, they're like, who's Elrond? And it's like, <laughs> oh, no, we can't risk NASA finding out that we're going to plan this mutiny, essentially, of what it is. Right. And we know that you guys are gung-ho enough. Most of you are military. You're not going to leave a man behind. You're going to call your family. Again, it comes at a sacrifice, but you're going to tell them, see ya, honey, in two years. Yeah, it, it is up to the crew to decide if they're going to go on this mission to save Mark. And yeah, that's the decision they come to, that they were never going to, NASA didn't want to tell them they had to do it. And so I, I don't know, Sean Bean's still getting fired. So <laughs> we're told by Sanders in this. So I guess he didn't approve of it, but some of the NASA people did. They wanted to get that message to them somehow. Yeah, it, there are consequences for making this choice. And that's probably right. If you have people that disobey you, you can't you can't keep them on staff, like even if they, quote unquote, get proven right. But question, question for the room. We, of course, want them to go get Mark. It makes a perfect poetic sense that they get to atone for what they did and fix things. But what if Mark hadn't been the funny guy? Like, everyone knows there's people in your office that you don't really like. <laughs> Maybe they don't have a sense of humor. Maybe they don't do a great job. Like, there's all this, like, kidding about, like, botany and who even needs this. Like, if Matt Damon's character weren't funny, like, maybe you just go home, right, and play with your kids. <laughs> that had to be, a like, a, a thought. That that would be an interesting story, yeah. Like, what, what if it's the, the jerk on the shuttle that yeah. gets left behind? Like, do you go back and save him? Because they have the same sense of humor. When they do, like, reach out and connect to him, you could see Michael Pena's character being like, sorry we left you, but we just don't like you, you know? Yeah. Like, they, they know him, and, and be, again, part of... I do think it's an adaptive tool. Like, part of the reason why people might love you and, and want to protect you is that you make them laugh and make them feel happy. And so, if he were a sourpuss that, you know, nobody liked, they'd probably be like, yeah, all right, it's someone else's job in four years. So, if that's something you want to explore... There's a show called Moonbase 8 with Fred Armisen and Tim Heidecker. <laughs> is it a comedy? It is a comedy. <laughs> okay, it's gotta be. <laughs> yeah, it's on HBO. I saw previews, but I couldn't make heads or tails of it. Is it good? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you like Fred Armisen type of humor and Tim Heidecker, it's definitely a recommend for me. But yeah, they, they explore some of that, you know, workplace quabbling and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. but they're, they're not actually on the moon. They're testing a habitat in the desert under real conditions. So so it's like Biodome? <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> kind of misfits out there doing it, but yeah. At least it's not Polly Shore and that bald one. <laughs> that sounds more like the actual office. Here, I feel like, <laughs> yes, it would be more, it would be too much the office if they decided they weren't going to do what the climax demands and turn around to a montage to David Bowie's star band, of course. Uh, we're going to see them all commit to, to bringing their man home and doing this crazy plan. Yeah, th this is like the last feel-good moment before the final rescue, because things are going to go bad after this. But yeah, you get this little montage where we're seeing everything go right, more or less for once. And there is a moment in the extended version where they give you the idea that Mark could end up being a teacher. Like, you, you won't see it in the theatrical cut. But he's actually, like, they left in a hurry. It's worth saying that they left, like, 18 days early or whatever. They left a lot of their samples behind and their work behind. 
And Mark's trying to bring that with him. Like, he'll cut a hole in the roof of his rover, and he's trying to cram all of their stuff. You know, he's being the, the responsible caretaker, and he's talking about, like, teaching and using this stuff, the knowledge that he's bringing back. I, I, again, they're setting him up for what he's going to become at the end of this movie. And again, trying to make you love the other characters, because we haven't had any time to get to know them. But in this montage, we see them making cute faces with their kids, and we'll find out that Jessica Chastain is the disco fan. She's excited her husband found ABBA vinyl. <laughs> you know, like, again, whatever they can do. Again, humor is a salve. You can use it. And if you need to make people fall in love with characters that aren't very well fleshed out, make us laugh a couple times. And we're all rooted for this team. Yeah, I, I feel like this film does that very well with the Earth group, with these astronauts, with Mark Watney. Like, there are not characters. Like, you tell me what the arcs are here. I don't see any arcs, but that's not what this film is about. This is about a rescue mission. It's about survival. So, yeah, you take these little psychological shortcuts to tell your brain, good guy, good guy, root for them. It's very effective. That That's why I'm like, this is kind of pretty commercial for Ridley Scott. Like, for him, I, I would feel like he'd be more challenging. But no, this this goes down very easy. Do you guys think this movie would benefit from having an antagonist somewhere? Somebody who's trying behind the scenes to squash any and all plans to get him back? Like a space alien? <laughs> <laughs> or just somebody in NASA who's trying to climb the ladder and, you know, get the guy ahead of him fired or something. Just somebody who would be able to be pointed to as the bad guy. Like China. They could actually have that scene, only it would play like, oh, we have the capability to go get him, but we're not going to. Sorry. You know, right. Like, yeah. Cynicism. Do we need to inject any more cynicism into this? I don't think it would fit with the message of this movie, which is the idea that triumph comes when people put all of that aside. Like, I just don't think that's the spirit of this movie. I don't think it's Pollyanna. I don't think that this movie is, again, they didn't just say, oh, we don't have enough time to build the rocket, but we did it anyway. They didn't have enough time to build the rocket and the rocket blew up. You know, this movie is pragmatic about the realities of space travel, but it, it ultimately lands in the positivity and, and positive outcomes. Yeah, I feel like being stranded on Mars is villain enough. <laughs> for this story yeah. like i didn't need more i i kind of like that it's about people coming together to you know at times this sounds crazy but at times i'm like oh yeah this is fictional because it, it almost feels like you know the apollo 13 that kind of thing the, the the way it's tapping into that realism like again I, I almost felt like it was a documentary at times like i didn't need the sinister bureaucrat to come in and try to pull the plug and pull all the funding on their overtime i got your ending mark does all of this goes up there and then he doesn't get to the ship and dies in space. You love it, right? <laughs> yeah, no, they're not going to do that, nor should they do that. Nor would I, I would be so mad if they did that. Everyone would. You can't, you can't break our hearts this way. Agreed. So yeah, three for three. I, I mean, we've just been kind of skirting around a little bit. So I just wanted to make sure that we're all on the same page and we didn't need this to be injected with some just fake drama for drama's sake to keep this movie going because it does clock in at over two hours. And I got to say, the pace keeps going. I mean, I'm not bored sitting here through this movie. Yeah, it is a long film. And I guess that's why one of my favorite scenes from the book gets cut as Mark, you know, re we're going to cut seven months later and he's trying to get to the side of another Mav so he could rocket up to that spaceship that's coming for him. Like there's a whole a whole other sandstorm, but like the way he figures it out because he's getting like a few minutes less every day on his solar panels. And he's like, oh, that's because of this dust storm that's slowly right. Like, and oh, 
gets blown over and like th- there is a whole scene you see that in the movie there's like a just a moment where he's sleeping under the rover and i'm like that looks like a tornado behind him like he is staying out of the way of the storms yeah you do see some tornadoes behind him yeah, I feel like that all that stuff just got cut because, yeah, we're, we're almost at two and a half hours with this film. But in the extended cut, you do get a scene like when he's out there, he has a portable hab that he's able to blow up and he goes inside. And that's where you get another shot of him stripped down and looking really bad, like sores all over his body as he's eating and then burying his shit on, on the sand with a sorry note, which is kind of funny. You know what I did want, like, a little bit more information on? When he's having the sort of teary goodbye to the Hab, you know, it's it's going to take him about 60 days to drive to where he's going, and he's got to leave the nest, so to speak. It looked like he made a little robot friend. Like, there was, like, a little droid or something that was, like, rolling around there in just, like, one little shot. That's right, yeah, that's something he yeah. got from the rover. Like, yeah, it was a little, like, solar power thing. Yes, you're right. Was there a story in the book involving that little guy? No, no, not one that I remember. No, he doesn't befriend any robots. It's not silent runnings. Okay. No short circuit moment of him coming to life. All right, different movie. Okay. No, but I did notice, I noticed that too, Stuart, and I did wonder if there were some cut little scenes or something that they just felt were... Yeah, what's that about? I'm like, he invented robots? Like, (laughs) this is really impressive for a botanist. I know he's smart, but... Damn. Well, he's also a mechanical engineer in the book, but they, yeah, they play up the botanist side. Right. Because, of course, that's the part that feels useless on a planet that can't grow anything. You know, the punchline (laughs) of, like, there's nothing in this but, like, like dirt that cannot sustain life. But he's proven them wrong. He's colonized it. He even made that point that once you've grown crops... By some definition of of colonization, like he is, <laughs> it is now Mark Watney of Mars. Maybe I missed it in the exposition because there is quite a few exposition dumps. But why is there a second rocket just sitting out there? Well, be, I don't think it's said in the. Well, there are some lines. Yeah, yeah. It, it's done very quickly. But this is the site for the next Hermes landing, and they send everything beforehand. So there, there's already been supplies being sent over there, and the Mav is is one of those. Okay. Again, you wouldn't bring it all with the people. You would, and again, that's why there's you know other rockets just coming and all of that. Like there aren't people coming for four more years, but there has been in all of the planning, uh, building up to yeah them being prepared when they get there, having everything they need. All right. And so yeah, you get this great scene. Like again, this feels like Apollo thirteen. We got this Mav. We got to get rid of what like five thousand kilograms or something. What do we do? Oh, take the nose off of it. Take the windows out of it. What? Like, don't you need to be inside of something when you go into space? Like crazy stuff. Apollo thirteen or Fast and the Furious again? Like I'm like, can it really? Can he really survive like going through the atmosphere and all? I guess it doesn't burn going up. He's just being shot up. He has a full like astronaut suit to do a spacewalk in, so it's not like he's going to be exposed to the elements. So mm-hmm. yeah, he just needs to get high enough so they could grab him out of the ship and pull him into their spaceship. Right. And we've already seen this crew's pretty good at that. They have flight surgeons and all that. Like, they connected with the probe, so... Well, if you saw the extended cut, they're not good, because we see Michael Pena's character practicing this, and he cannot do it. Yes, that's true. He is going to fly the Mav, because Mark cannot with that suit on. Mm Mm-hmm. And, of course, they... They've got the calculations wrong. They're not going to end up uh, meeting uh, at the exact inception point that they had hoped. 
Right, yeah, they're they're well off course, you know. I mean, they're I don't know if their plan was to have them actually just float right in like the pod did when they were getting refitted back at Earth, because that seemed to go off without a hitch. But yeah, this this mission is by the skin of their teeth, you know. Mark's flying up there in his little jerry-rigged rocket, and they're speeding by and off by hundreds of kilometers 68 kilometers <laughs> and they, yeah so they got to burn all their fuel just to get close enough and that's not it. and even though they're going to get close enough now they're going too fast <laughs> like so they got to figure out a way to slow down so they don't like just splat into them the movie's smart but it it knows that it needs to play to what climax is how you know, we if we can't have a chasing so to speak we need to have some kind of michael bayish last minute things not coming together kind of nail biters like we just need that we need cliffhanger moments and there's plenty here that work yeah and i gotta say all all from the book like a sugar bomb from the book like Mm. none of this was added like yeah let's make a bomb out of sugar again if you're on a nasa spaceship that they don't want anything blowing up on how do you create a bomb out of that just great stuff and the reason why they are blowing it up is worth underlining this crew not only have they like volunteered to come back and take 500 more days to rescue their friend but they're gonna have to like really be close they're like blowing up most of their ship like they won't have access to the gym anymore maybe to the kitchen i don't know they're all going to be in the broom closet together it's a long 10 months back yeah they do they do lose 90 percent of their space for traveling back home and that, that was something that you know that really hit me i was just like wow what do i want to go back now i mean do we have to shower anymore? Because I haven't showered in three years, apparently. <laughs> you wouldn't do this for just anybody in your office. That's all that I'm trying to say. <laughs> some people, you're like, nope, somebody else will figure it out. I think astronauts have this kind of friendship. No, we did see them fight a lot in the right stuff last week. So mm-hmm. It's not always peaceful. Yeah, they all got to go. So, like, I guess they don't have to compete about who's going to, you know. And and obviously, Mark is the record holder. Like, he's lived now on Mars longer than anyone. He, he even has that dialogue when he's driving to the ship. He's like, I'm the first in everything now. And I'm going to be the fastest man that, you know, ever, uh, like, was launched. Like, all of this is very much record book breaking stuff and i guess it's it's a good thing it's post 2009 because we all know what it means to iron man out of a ship now (laughs) (laughs) but that is his plan like puncture he's still off like we're gonna see lewis she's gonna try to go out there she's got a tether to to her to keep her to the ship but still not quite close enough he's got to puncture his glove and let that pressure that air shoot out like iron man's little jets in his hands and to try to make it those last few meters yeah i mean again we like they are competing with the Marvel movies, like they're in to get audiences interested. You can't just go with realism. Like I'm not saying this is not realistic, but you gotta really push it in order to get like mass audiences engaged in a way that's going to pay for this movie. And I think it does. I actually think that this climax is as exciting as many Marvel movies. Maybe less capes are happening here, <laughs> but I do think they've found a way to contrive a lot of things going off kilter to make everyone. I mean, again, I think the thing that gets me is Sebastian Stan. You'll barely notice him in this movie. Yeah, I'm I'm like, is that Sebastian Stan? Mm -hmm. It kind of looks like him, and it was. Yeah, never (laughs) noticed him in the movie, but he has this one moment where he's got a, like, he's got the bomb, and he's got a, like, leap, like, free style, like, no tether to, like, other parts of the ship to land the bomb or whatever. I'm like, ooh, that's scary. You, You don't grab on the railing and... 
away you fly forever. Yeah, that was getting to me too. I was like, wow, I mean, don't you guys have to tether up? Like, no, he's just going right out into space. I mean, when there's a bomb, yeah, you just hurry and get out of there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you make it a priority. I remember the first time reading this book and then, and then this time before I watched it again, like just this ending was so intense and I was so into it and I'm glad the film is able to keep that intensity because, wow, like that. you talk about those potatoes. Yeah, a lot of people remember the potatoes. It's such a novel thing at the beginning, but this ending really stuck with me too because it's just like we are going to just keep adding problems to this rescue mission that you got to solve up until the very last minute. You know, I bet you they got some studio notes. I'm willing to bet because Hollywood loves a love story. It does sell a lot of tickets. If you don't have romance in the movie, it can usually hurt. It can usually hurt the bottom line, the female audience. It just doesn't play as broadly. But uh, they had to be thinking, wouldn't it work better if Jessica Chastain was like (laughs) Matt Damon's wife? It feels like it was going that way at times. Maybe yeah, a little bit. You feel like they could have they could have done it, and I wouldn't even mind it. Like if that's what you got to do, but that's just a little too cheesy for this movie. And again, I appreciate the fact that they're trying to not be cliched. They really want to hit all the right notes that a space action movie should, but they really do want to keep this grounded in camaraderie. It's all about a community of friends and and teamwork, and it's not about love. It's not about God. It's not about those bigger grander ideas human secularism that is what it is about and they had to add something they could have easily done that because the book doesn't really have an ending it's like mark makes it he cracks a few jokes about his cracked ribs and he's like yeah isn't it great how humanity came together to save one person the end like they try to find some kind of ending here because it does not exist in the book yeah, and I love this moment. I mean, I love the fact that we cut from, they grab him, they are tangling in space, and the next thing we see is a moment that we've all had that we probably just take for granted, that he would have taken for granted and never will again. I'm just sitting on a park bench drinking Starbucks. You know what I mean? Like, what a luxury after an adventure like that <laughs> to be able to appreciate a creature comfort that we just all assume is, you know, just another average day. But yeah, pretty special for him. And of course, you know, he's a superstar now. He like people are jogging by and stop and stare and he is on his day one of his new career path. He is now an instructor training future astronauts. Yeah, how to survive being stranded on Mars 101. That seems more like more like a 401 class. Like that should be senior level. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that's the point. Maybe like what this movie is subtly saying here is this is going to become a reality for us pretty soon. I hope that's true. I don't know if they're right or not, but the optimism is high. And the idea of get ready for this folks get excited about this it's going to be hard i know some of you don't even see the point in this but we're going to get there we will achieve uh, we will get these space dreams that feel frankly so out of touch from the way that we've lived the last 20 years yeah it, it's not going to be in 2020 because that's the year i realized a lot of people are skeptical of science Mm -hmm. I agree. Maybe a harder thing to accept. I wonder if this movie did come out this year, if it would be as embraced uh, as it was six years ago. But yeah, we get a, again, it doesn't end with him getting home. It ends with a new mission. It ends with Martinez going back with the Chinese. It ends with, yeah, some people are grounded, but Johansson, uh, Kate Mara, like she's having a baby and still watching the new mission launch because, again, she cares so much about where we're going. It's as important to her as her own child. But is this movie important to us? Justin, Jacob, do you recommend The Martian? Justin. 
You know, after we watched the right stuff and that whole movie was about the achievement of just getting men into orbit on our planet, this does seem like a giant step forward in at least storytelling. Perhaps a giant leap? Mm. Yes. Yes. Pun intended. You know, we, we shot right <laughs> past the moon. We didn't watch a movie about getting to the moon. We're, we went right to Mars here in this this little mini series we've done. But yeah, Jacob, you said it earlier where this plays almost as if it's a real story and we're seeing pieces from a documentary here to pull that off and make an interesting movie that keeps you watching throughout is, is no small feat. And at the same time, there's a lot of big ideas here that they kept themselves restrained from going too far. I mean, think about it. If this was another Hollywood movie in the hands of a Michael Bay or something, Getting Mark onto the return ship wouldn't have been the end. They would have they would have had to fight off of a wave of asteroids at some point on the journey home, and they had to <laughs> barely miss hitting the moon or something, and then crash landed into the ocean. Like they knew where to to draw the end of the drama on this, and they could have just in so many different areas just gone too far. But I feel like Ridley Scott knew where to draw the line in almost every instance here. And like Stuart said earlier, I don't know who else could have pulled this off other than Matt Damon. There's a long list of actors in Hollywood that could have just come off as schmarmy or people you don't care about. And if you don't care about our stranded character on Mars, this whole movie implodes. So this movie was well done all the way around, and I was glad to come back to it. And I will watch it again in the future after I, you know, get a little brain rot and forget it again, because it's not one that you want to watch weekly or anything like that, but... It's a fun watch every couple of years, and I'll come back to it again after a while. But yeah, it's it's a green arrow for me. Jacob. Yeah, it, it's interesting watching this so close to the right stuff because there's a film, it's about real life people, but there's these moments of just craziness, like where I, I really get into it and, and seeing Jaeger, you know, just trying to fly to the stars at the end there and have to bail out and and just do crazy stuff. And, th and that's a real thing that happened, but I feel like this film is able to tap into a, a similar kind of emotion going on. Like there are moments that feel so scary because I, I have put myself into that situation like it's really possible like that, that I could be on Mars by myself somehow like there's a moment we didn't really dwell on it when the door blasts open off the hab and you know all the plants die he just puts a plastic tarp over it and like duct tapes it and like another point where he duct tapes his face shield closed and I'm like where do you get the balls to go back into that hab with just some duct tape and, and, and a tarp closing up the seal between you and and the vacuum of Mars like that is crazy it feels scary like and I think that is the benefit of having someone like Ridley Scott behind the camera that there are some very ominous points where I'm like, wow, this like I am just pulled into this moment right now and and, and could put myself there and imagine like the, the emotions and feelings you must be going through. But then there's also lighter moments like that. that and that is the surprise to me with having Ridley Scott behind the cameras. I don't often associate him. I try to go through all the films I've seen of his and I just lightness and jokes like it's not something I often associate with the director. And I'm glad this is more commercial. You know, I love Love the book, read the book, but it is a lot of science, a lot of equations. And this time, the second viewing here, I was able to appreciate really how they adapted that novel that can be very tough to understand at times as it gets into formulas and calculating how many calories you need to live for four years and all that. Like this takes the right amount to make a, a, a fun adventure that that is about the, you know, triumph of the human spirit or, or people, humanity getting along and using their applied knowledge 
courage to solve a really crazy problem. And, and yeah, it's a fun adventure with, with all that stuff going on behind it to, to maybe teach you a little lesson or open your eyes about putting brains together and, and solving our problems instead of fighting all the time. So yeah, definitely watch this film. Solid recommend. Yeah, even if I were to be cynical, and I could, I could just say this movie is nothing but a NASA commercial. They just wanted a PR campaign to say we're still relevant. It would still be a solid recommend for that, because who doesn't want to see the space program succeed? Particularly since we're that generation that watched it slip away, like moon landing to Challenger disaster. It hasn't been fun to watch NASA fall apart. I want it to be the comeback kid. I love the message that all their huge embarrassments, all the things that went wrong, are not things to, to hide and, and cut their funding. These are the toeholds that are going to get you to climb to the next level. That's how we're going to get to Mars, is by failing and learning from those mistakes and accepting that that's part of the process. And I think Ridley Scott took that to heart. I don't have much feeling for the movies he was making around this time. I think his return to the Alien franchise with Prometheus and Covenant were mistakes. But because he worked on those films, I think he was in sci-fi mode and he was able to workshop those ideas, pull from those middling projects and really make Martian a very technically beautiful movie and his most entertaining since, I don't know, NASA was good at its job since those early 90s, the Thelma and Louise. You got some strong words for NASA, man. I, you're going to get a knock on the door. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that this is my perception. I don't, again, they may have achieved amazing things, but my understanding as a ignorant person that learns about space when it becomes relevant in the news, it seems like it's been a lot of failures, but maybe it's taken all those failures for them to get it right. And because of that, we have an excellent movie. We have a director that's learned from his mistakes given his best work in decades. Matt Damon is as good as he was back as Will Hunting. And again, I wanted to stress, like, I love this movie's unique take on survival. I have seen many movies where it's one man alone against the elements, or woman, if it were gravity, you know, cast away, life of Pi, people thrown into these impossible situations. And usually where we land on that is... Loneliness is the theme and powerlessness is the lesson that we need in order to get in touch with our maker. You know, it's spiritual. It's God. And this movie, nope, there are no unopened FedEx packages uh, to be had. Like, we are, we use everything in our toolbox. Crucifixes are ways to grow potatoes. You want to save yourself. You need to use all the things at your disposal and you need to connect with other people. Close communication is how we're going to get to Mars, how we're going to get to the next level of space race. And yeah, amen. I love that. I think that's a very special, important message to have for this time, whether you care about space or not. A very inspiring movie and a very solid recommend. Hey, hey, three for three again. We're getting some good recommendations. Yeah, I know. I've, now I'm wishing we had done like a, a longer space thing. Like I, f I feel like this is actually a pretty, we didn't design it really. Again, it was two people that donated to hear these movies and I stuck them together. But yeah, it, what, what an interesting thing to explore is we've looked at so much sci-fi, but to think of a sci-fact, you know, like it's been cool. Yeah, which sci-fact, that's definitely why we need to get to Armageddon. <laughs> 
<laughs> Would you stop with the Armageddon? No one has donated for that. I got to play the Artie role here. He's not here to stick up for it. <laughs> no one has donated for it. I am never going to watch that movie unless someone pays for me to do so. But I do appreciate Again, I want to thank Justin Ramsey for bringing his passion for this project, the book and this movie, to us. I'm not sure that we would have ever covered it in any other way. And if you love what he did and want to do it too, we are, I think, very soon, if not already, going to be taking requests again. We had to put the kibosh on that because we got overloaded, but we're now filling up the main feed with some picks. Every month we have some picks going on. We just released Schindler's List last week. And next month, <laughs> Jacob, it's your pick. Talk about a disaster <laughs> that needs to be solved. Yeah. Cats! Yeah, Cats, the... Uh, magical musical that everyone loved in the 80s. They woke up in the 2010s and realized, what a horrible idea for a movie. We'll be getting to that. If you want to become a patron, these are the kinds of diverse movies that we like to celebrate <laughs> and explore. And it's just, it's again, it's what we do on the main feed week after week, but they're special because they're not franchise films. Oftentimes, they are one-offs and one-of-a-kinds and just things we wouldn't normally get to cover. And I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, you... you... Find out more about how to get those shows on Podbean or Patreon or Spotify or Apple Music. If you go to nowplayingpodcast.com, all the details are there. That's right. And Justin, you're, we're not done with you yet. We're going back to video games, though. Arnie's coming back next week. You and I, we're all going to go fight Umbrella Corporation and a new idea on Resident Evil. Oh, I'm sorry, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> At least it's a reboot, not just a continuation of where we were. So there's there's a little bit of hope. I agree. I actually, a slight bit of hope that we might actually have a good video game movie because there's no PTS Anderson uh, or PTSD Anderson or his <laughs> wife uh, doing any kind of flips. My daughter calls him that. <laughs> My daughter calls him that, PTSD <laughs> Anderson, after watching one of his films. Mmm, yeah, well. Monster Hunter, another arcade movie. Clever kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've covered all of those. You can find out all of those wonderful video game movies. I can't believe how many great works of cinema have come from video games. <laughs> We're going back to that Resident <laughs> Evil game next week. And yeah, welcome to Raccoon City. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you'll be able to tell us what's going on with that reveal. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. We'll be leaving space now, but we'll still be chasing that demon. Join us next week with Resident Evil. At some point, everything's going to go south on you. Everything's going to go south, and you're going to say, this is it. This is how I end. Now, you can either accept that, or you can get to work. That's all it is. You just begin. Thank you for listening to this Now Playing Podcast movie review. We hope you enjoyed the show. You asked me how you did, and I'm giving you my answer. And a special thanks to Justin Ramsey for his incredible support of our show and for picking The Martian for our hosts to review. Thank you very much. So one more question. Help us spread the word about this show by leaving a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your podcast store of choice. Should we alert the media? Want more reviews like this one? In the archives section of NowPlayingPodcast.com, you'll find more than 1,000 in-depth movie reviews from our panel of hosts. We've been watching you since all 54. On our site, you can hear reviews for every installment in the world's biggest film franchises, including Star Wars, Batman, James Bond, Middle Earth, Jurassic Park, 
Fast and Furious, and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I'd get to fly around like Iron Man. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com next Tuesday for another all-new movie review podcast. He's uh, sticking to schedule. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. You can donate directly by tapping the support button at NowPlayingPodcast.com. The longer we wait, the worse it's going to get. And you can join our crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. Get started. I'll find you the money. Need more Now Playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. Hey, whatever does it for you, man. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when they're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. I need more coffee. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I don't want to decide what's best for the crew. Associate produced by Jason Latham. They grudgingly admit that he's, he's doing great work. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. When did you last sleep? Now Playing credits read by Brock. This won't exactly be an Algonquin roundtable of snappy repartee. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Venganza Media Incorporated. You're afraid of a PR problem? Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review and no infringement is intended. Which by definition makes me a pirate. Mark Watney, space pirate. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Does that make any sense to you? Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2021, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. I guarantee they will never send you back up here again. So here's the thing, kind of Mark, what is it? It's Mark, right? Or is it Matt? It's Matt Damon playing Mark. It's Matt Damon, Mark Watley. Ma- Mark Watney. Watney, okay. Okay. Right. Yeah. But I'll never say Watley, or I'll keep saying Watley. Watley, okay. I'm just got, I got that last name wrong, and you got the first one wrong. Yeah. It is now Mark Watley of Mars. He's the Martian. Watney. God damn it. Mark Watley. Mar- Watney. No, it's not. Mark Watney of Mars. I think I said... I don't even know what I'm saying anymore. You said Lee. <laughs> oh, fuck. I hate this name. I'm Mark of Mars. I'm just not even going to say it. But is this movie important to us? 
Jacob, Justin, or is it the other way around? I think I usually go first. Uh, other way around. Yeah, Justin first. Justin, Jacob, do you recommend The Martian? Then you say Justin. All right, Justin. And then you say Watley. No, <laughs> I don't. I keep thinking of Jody Watley. That's, I think, what it really is. Like, all this disco music, and I'm just thinking about, yeah. I'm looking for a new love, baby. <laughs> Perhaps you'll be able to tell us what's going on with that reveal. <laughs> Maybe. That was my four non-blondes impersonation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you really have to go for it. <laughs> and I cry. Yeah. I do not want to do that. Oh, it's so bad. I hate that song. <laughs> oh, my God. Do I cry? I think I woke up all my neighbors. 